Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by Fox News host Tucker Carlson. This is episode one. This Fourth Watch Podcast is presented by The First TV. Find out more at thefirsttv.com. More on that later. On CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, Obama and Trump, Twitter and Google, and more, we start at the inauguration of Barack Obama. You and I did a podcast together. The first one we ever did together was January 19th, 2009. I was at TV Newser. You had just left MSNBC. It was the day before President Obama's first inauguration. And you told me at the time that it was very exciting in D.C., but let's not pretend this is the second coming of Jesus. And I, I look at that moment, and I, it's kind of sort of interesting to look back at that, you know, 11, almost 12 years later. You know, it wasn't a reality TV host, but, but Obama did seem to usher in this kind of celebrityfication of politics, this cultural conversation. Do you, do you think something like that shifted at that point? I do. I mean, you know, it, it probably takes more than 11 years to get the perspective you need to figure out when things changed and why. But One thing that did change or accelerate that's bothered me ever since is that we stopped keeping track of measurements that actually matter to people. The most profound thing that happened under the Obama presidency, and I'm not blaming him for it, but it did happen while he was president, is that the middle class became the minority in the country. Less than 50% of the country qualified as middle class. And, you know, that that hadn't happened ever in modern American history. It completely changed the nature of the country. It made the era of monopoly dominance we're living through possible. It was, I would say, you know, a watershed. It made Trump possible. It got Trump elected. It made the country, you know, poorer, more volatile, less happy, less healthy. It was a huge change. And I don't remember anyone even noting it when it happened or when it became clear when the labor statistics came out that it had happened. It just kind of went unnoticed because we had this, you know, eloquent, handsome, historic president. And, you know, that's a that's a big difference. Like in the end, you ought to judge people by what they do. Right by their deeds rather than their words. And I say that as someone who uses words for a living, and I obviously I love words. They're my currency, but they're not the best measure. The best measure is whether or not you improve something while you have control over it. And Obama did not improve the country when he had control over it. And again, Donald Trump got elected in his wake, so it's kind of demonstrable. But we we stopped taking into account facts and started focusing purely on ephemeral things like, you know, can the guy speak clearly or is he, you know, speaking in a way that calms me down or that, or that enrages me or whatever, but, you know, less relevant criteria became more important. So that, that's one massive change that I didn't foresee. Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't think it certainly wasn't related. I think they were sort of parallel paths, but you look at where the media landscape was in 2009 to now social media, Twitter, Facebook as a, you know, way to connect with a media organization rather than like college friends. All of that is really in the last 10 or 11 years. How do you think social media has played into this, you know, way of making politics into sports and the way that the media and the has it affected our cultural discourse? Well, the media just collapsed as a, as a, as a business model. 
um, in that, in that time. I mean, I've, this is all I've ever done, you know, for my 29th year this week, actually is 29 years in this business. And I started in magazines, which I don't think even exist. I started at a quarterly magazine. Those definitely (laughs) don't exist. So yeah, I mean, the change has been bewildering, but the changes, and we forget this mirror larger changes in the economy. Basically you have a smaller number of people controlling an ever-growing number of institutions. You have the concentration of wealth and power. And that's a problem. It's always a problem. This was a great country because it was a much more egalitarian country than it is now. You didn't have a hard and fast caste system like you do now. There was much more social mobility. We called it the American dream, but I mean, it's, it's familiar to any country, the idea that you can you know, rise or fall based on what you do, your talents, your merits, your effort. And all of that has changed. And so as you've seen, you know, more consolidation in the broader economy, you've seen the same thing in media. So like even 11 years ago, it would have been shocking if I would have been stunned if you told me that two companies essentially controlled all digital media, but that's where we are. Facebook and Google control the overwhelming amount percentage of ad revenue right. that flows into digital media companies. And when you control someone's revenue, you control the company, period. Because the company, that's, you know, <laughs> right? If I've got my hands around your throat, I control you. And yeah. so Facebook and Google control the American media with very few exceptions. One exception is Fox News, which is a publicly held company, but it's but it was started by a family and, and it's run by them still. And so we have a measure of independence that, that most media companies don't. And I'm grateful every day for that, that we can say what we think is true, but most people can't because they're dependent on Google and Facebook. That fact right there accounts for a lot of the change that we've seen. Right. And we don't even take it into account because we never talk about economics ever, which ought to tell you something. Is Twitter a media company or a platform? And how should the government interact with powerful, gigantic digital outlets? Tucker and I disagree. That's coming up. The consolidation in the, you know, the giant media companies is absolutely, you know, especially in the last couple of years accelerated. But then you've got that with, you know, Twitter, uh, this overemphasis on, you know, a person can have a very small platform and, and be, you know, very meaningless in the grand scheme of things, but can be taken extremely seriously uh, by the things that they put out, you know, in, in their own little media bubble in a way. I mean, Twitter is a media company. It's not a platform. It's a media company. I mean, people make their living on Twitter. A lot of people, a lot of former employees of big media companies now do their work on Twitter, and that's how they make their living. You know, they, they direct readers to Patreon or, or whatever. So it's, I mean, <laughs> I, a healthy economy would produce a healthy, diversified media. But we don't have a healthy economy. We have an economy essentially built on finance and, and tech monopolies. And so you shouldn't be surprised when the media business gets completely distorted as a result of it. In other words, like, you know, 11 years ago, I think Twitter existed 11 years ago. It did, barely, yeah. Reporters... Well, reporters at daily newspapers weren't allowed to tweet their opinions because you devalue the product. You devalue 
the news stories they're writing because you allow viewers to see what they really think and you pull the curtain back and and you undermine their authority as objective collectors of news. But media companies began to allow their employees to use social media when they had no choice. Yeah. And they had no choice because it was a way to drive readers to their dying media properties. Right. No. So again, this is all about economic shifts. And because no one in the media, you know, can balance a checkbook, nobody ever mentions this. But it's it's absolutely the problem. It's uh, the, 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 the change, the shift in that is obviously so helpful for, uh, you know, a thing when I got what I'm doing with fourth watch to be able to see behind the curtain. Uh, I don't know if the media companies know exactly how disastrous it is to have their employees airing their, their immediate thoughts on Twitter all day long, uh, and then try to then go write an article or, you know, do a segment on TV. It's kind of, uh, it's fascinating that there's not more of a, of a pullback just from, you know, the private media companies to, 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 you know, put a little lid on. Well, that. it depends what you want. I mean, if, you know, if your if your goal is to produce a, you know, a, a product as objectively as you can and convince your viewers or readers that you're doing that, then obviously social media are a disaster for you because they prove that you're not doing it, that these people aren't objective at all, that they're partisans, which most of them are. But that's not their goal anymore. You know, that's really no one's goal. I mean, I don't think anybody's trying to deliver straight down the middle objective news because you can't make any money doing that. You, you can't run a business doing that. And the nonprofits in the news world are every bit as ideological as the Washington Post. So we've really, you know, that it turns out that the era that we grew up in or I grew up in as a 51 year old was an anomaly. I mean, it was just a brief respite from the normal state of affairs, which is a totally partisan media used as a weapon by the political parties in order to gain political power. I mean, that's kind of what the media have been for you know most of the history of media. And for this short post-war period, that wasn't true. And we pretended like that was normal. It wasn't normal. And in fact, a lot of our post-war institutions weren't normal, like liberal democracy, which is clearly going away. You know, that's not the natural state of man. Yeah. <laughs> that was like this really cool thing we had for a while until it, you know, until we didn't. Yeah. Well, going back to the tech platforms, because I think this is probably one of the areas that you and I disagree with the most, uh, is, is a question of like, what do we do about it? Right. Google, Facebook, these are San Francisco based platforms or companies that we know will will come from a preconceived bias against the right. But but the private companies, I mean, you know, I know how you feel about the government. Why do you think government regulation is more the answer here? Well, I wouldn't say government regulation. I would say I would use the term government force, you know, with the military if necessary to break up and destroy the company simply because Democracy is incompatible with them. You can't have a functioning democracy if you have a private, heavily foreign-controlled government, controlled company like Google, that's more powerful than your government. It just, it just doesn't work. I mean, you, you can hope that it works. You can say that it should work. It's like one of my one of my daughters was telling me the other day. Well, I'm you know I'm upset because I it's very hard to have platonic friendships with boys, you know, when you're 21. And I said, I, I know it's upsetting, but I don't know that we can change it. This is kind of human nature. <laughs> that's, yeah, and that's kind of the way, you know what I mean? Like I, I love the libertarian idea 
But the truth is, if you have a company that's not accountable to voters that controls all human information in English, it makes it impossible for anybody to believe that the democracy is on the level because it's just too easy to subvert. So in other words, for the same reason that you're not allowed to mint your own currency and compete with the U.S. dollar, you're not allowed. It's a federal crime. They'll put you in jail for it. People have gone to jail for it. You shouldn't be allowed to have a company that's more powerful than the government because you can't have a country like that. It doesn't work. I mean, someone needs to be in charge. And effectively, Google's going to be in charge. Well, okay, what does that mean? That means that the sovereign wealth funds of you know, lots of countries that hate us have more power over the U.S. government than American voters do. Oh, well, that doesn't work. So, I mean, in the short term, I would just say Google exists, Facebook exists, Twitter exists in their present forms only because they got a special carve-out in the 1996 law called the Communications Decency Act, which allowed them immunity from lawsuits on the premise that they were platforms, neutral platforms, not content providers, not news organizations. And without that, they, you know, they would be like Fox News. We can't say certain things because we'll get sued and we are sued all the time. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Unfairly, but, right. but whatever, that's a huge issue for us and for every news organization. It's not an issue for them because the U.S. Congress has exempted them, but they've broken their part of the deal. They're not neutral arbiters. They're not platforms. They're making editorial decisions day in and day out. They happen to be partisan decisions that I disagree with. But even if I agreed with them, I would make the same case, which is like, what? You know, why do you get that? Why do you get that special law that allows you to become a billionaire and I don't? Like, it's just unfair. It's wrong. We should revoke it immediately. Tucker Carlson on diversity in the media, how everyone sounds the same, and the personal brand building that's happening on Substack and others. That's coming up. The Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials. No censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com. That's thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Tucker Carlson. Well, let me let me ask you, going back to your, your first kind of foray into new media, maybe. This was another podcast we did together. Actually, I was at Media. You were at The Daily Caller in July of 2010. Uh, and this was right around that time you purchased KeithOlberman.com. Um, and uh, you seemed like you were having a lot of fun at the time. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. <laughs> this was about 10 years ago. Uh, what stands out to you from those early years of The Daily Caller? Well, my favorite was getting an email over KeithOlberman.com from Colby Hall at Media saying what a huge fan he was. <laughs> of Keith Olbermann. Then I wrote back some you know, ridiculous email in Keith Olbermann's voice or what I imagined it was. And, Colby was completely convinced he was talking to Keith Olbermann. He was so excited. It's hilarious. Um, but what I remember, I mean, I remember working really hard as you do in a startup. And I remember watching a lot of my assumptions crumble in the face of evidence, you know, which often happens to me. And I remember thinking the media business is changing really fast. And I don't really understand what's going on because even in my early forties, I was too old to understand it. 
I was burdened by too many pre-existing assumptions just from having grown up in it. My dad was in the media. So, I mean, I just spent my whole life in it and you know, things just changed really, really fast. And even now looking backward, I don't fully understand all the changes, just like the big picture stuff. I just, I just explained, but it was, I mean, it was really, it was super fun. I loved it. I did it with my college roommate. My best friend, Neil Patel is just a wonderful guy and he runs it still. But I think that that whole business is, you know, it's, it's not at all what it was advertised to be when we started. I mean, we really thought at the time that there would be hundreds and hundreds, you know, so 340 million people in the country it can sustain a lot of different news outlets. And we thought there'd be hundreds of daily callers, not just from the right, but from the middle or the Trotskyite left, or that we have a whole right. diversity of views. And then you wake up one morning and you realize everybody is the daily beast. <laughs> everybody is repeating the same kind of banal, stupid ruling class talking points, you know, that they learned at Dalton in 1995 and were confirmed at Penn. And you know what I mean? Just <laughs> yeah. like the, well, literally the dumbest possible take on everything, which is how I would summarize the daily beast. But that's everybody. That's the Washington post. It's the New York times. It's, it's even like I read some of the fringy stuff like Jacobin because I think maybe someone will say something interesting, you right. know, and challenge my beliefs and in, inform me. But increasingly, I mean, I read a piece in Jacobin the other day saying, oh, you know, maybe monopolies aren't bad. Maybe Google's a good thing. Maybe mom and pops are the problem. And it's like, really, you're a corporate shill now, too. <laughs> you know, everybody sounds the same. I watched Bernie Sanders get up the other day and someone's like, oh, by the way. Kamala Harris is like a tool of Wall Street. Is that a problem for you? And he's like, oh, I can't answer that question under orders from the DNC. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's happening is the opposite of what they say there is, is happening. Like they, they, they never start talking about diversity. Well, it's one of the very few people in America who actually likes diversity. I'll tell you, it doesn't exist anymore. What we're looking at is relentless gray sameness. Everybody has exactly the same view. Dissent break with orthodoxy, no longer allowed. Well, These are the enemies of diversity. And they've got a lot of balls to use that word, I must say. Yeah. They really do. It really takes a lot of chutzpah to lecture me about diversity as you try to force me off the air for saying something different from what you're saying. Right. <laughs> it's like insane. Right. No, no, exactly. And, <laughs> and you know, and actually, New York Times and some of the others in their recent, you know, controversy after the Tom Cotton thing, they've actually gone away from using the term diversity. Now, all of a sudden, diversity is somehow, you know, that this 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 negative connotation to it. I I don't think you get much of the real diversity of thought beyond places like a Substack and you know people building their own platforms in the way that Andrew Sullivan is or Matt Taibbi is. I mean, people who actually have a real diversity of thought who welcome you know, differing opinions. I completely agree. I completely agree. Completely. Yeah. And it's funny how desperate I find myself, not because I'm some kind of deep intellectual, I'm, I'm certainly not, but just because I've got a short attention span, I, I just want someone to tell me something interesting. And I'm so, I can't even read the New York Times anymore. And it's not because they're so left-wing. They're not left-wing. They're just corporatists. You know, they push race conflicts so no one will ask them about capital gains taxes. I, I know what's going on. I get it. But that's not even what bothers me. What bothers me is that 
nobody is willing to take a chance right. on anything. Everyone is so terrified. Well, speaking of really, yeah, really. You look out across the landscape and it's just pure uniformity. I mean, they used to say that about the 1950s. Oh, it was the blandest decade in American history. Really? Compared to this? I don't <laughs> think so. I mean, yeah. art itself is gone. There's no art. There's no creativity. You know, the, the only innovation going on in music that I've seen is in like bluegrass or Americana, you know, people looking backward and, and improving upon that. The visual arts, I'm actually interested in art. I like art. Aesthetics are important to me. And there's nothing being created that you're going to look back on and say, wow, that's impressive or inspired or there's a flash of genius there. No, none of it. It's all garbage. Yeah. And yeah. that should tell you. Because art reflects, I mean, there's a reason that we didn't have art for a thousand years, except in like an occasional monastery, because it was the Dark Ages. And then when that ended, we called it the Renaissance, right? It came back. It, you know, it rose from the ashes and we had art again. We're in that moment. And I don't, no one seems to care. It's so bewildering to me. Well, there's a, there's a small, I mean, I, I think it's fear, right? I mean, it, there's, a, there's a small minority of people who are pushing back against this. And I, you know, I, I think people have talked about that Harper's letter, you know, to, to the end of the earth. But I do think no, that- No, those the, people are such frauds. They're I, such cowards. Really? I mean, see, at the, the very least- sign that letter, I mean, they're just totally- <laughs> I mean, talk about a fraudulent group. Are you freaking kidding? Well, at the very least, they're, you know, they're the, recognize the, the problem. People who actually believe what they claim to believe are, are the ones who are out there risking their income to say it. I mean, Matt Taibbi, and I'm sure I disagree with Matt Taibbi on like 95% of things. I have no idea. But like Matt Taibbi actually took a big risk. Right. You know, and now he's writing on Substack. But Matt Taibbi just like says what he thinks. And, and I would say that some of the... A lot of the bravery actually is not on the right. It's on the independent left. Just to show you that I'm, I, I mean this. I'm yeah. not, this is not a partisan point I'm making. This is a sincere point. Like the people who are saying interesting things, and I know them all personally, and I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to wreck their lives more than they have been, but like they're on the left. They're on the populist left, and they're, they're like, what the hell? Tucker has the rare distinction of hosting cable news shows at every cable news channel, CNN and MSNBC, previously to a stop now at Fox. So, how does he think of those outlets now? That's coming up. All right, as a way to get to know me better, I'm going to tell you the story of someone in the media who has blocked me on Twitter. So, this is called Blocked, Ridiculous Stories of Media Twitter. Today, we are going to start with the first one, Keith Olbermann. One of the more interesting career trajectories has been Keith Olbermann's. He was an ESPN star, perhaps one of the most consequential media personalities at MSNBC. He moved to current TV, went back to ESPN. Then he was hosting a web show for GQ, literally called The Resistance, where he did absolutely crazy monologues. Now he's now since rejoined ESPN and never mentions Trump in more than two years on Twitter. Nearly seven years ago, so this would be his second ESPN stint, I tweeted upon his rehire that I thought was actually sort of praiseworthy as uh, juxtaposed his hire as kind of the visceral with Nate Silver of 538's hire as the cerebral, both good hires, I thought. Well, apparently he didn't like that. I was blocked shortly after that. Blocked on July 20th, 2013. Status still blocked. And now back to my interview with Fox News host Tucker Carlson. You have the rare uh, status of hosting cable news shows on all three cable outlets, uh, CNN with Crossfire. You were there in 2005. I was there in 2012, 2013. I would say it's it's quite different than when you were there and when I was there and even maybe four or five years ago. Um, do you ever watch it and try to diagnose like what happened here? Oh, I know exactly what happened. 
I mean, CNN, when I worked there, was liberal, but it also had, and this came directly from Ted Turner, it had, you know, an independent spirit to it. I mean, Ted Turner was nothing if not, you know, independent. Right. And uh, a very impressive guy in some ways. I mean, I never agreed with anything he said, but he was brave, really brave. And um, so that, that, that was still in the air when I was there. Now, CNN is just purely a, a Praetorian guard for the people in charge. I mean, it's just like Jeff Zucker's police force, you know, where he sends out that weird bug-eyed kid or the, or the other guy whose name I can never remember. <clears throat> um, you know, but he sends these kids out to silence anyone who's asking too many questions. And that's not journalism. Okay, fine. But it's, it's not only not journalism, it's really poisonous. It's, it's actually makes my head spin to see a news organization used as a tool of censorship, but that's exactly what CNN is. And it's, what do they censor? Well, anything that, you know, threatens the people in charge. Yeah. Jeff Zucker's friends. I've, I've mean, it's, to, it's, it's really poisonous. Do you think it's a business decision or do you think it's like a true believer, you know, I, I, even in, in obviously this sort of existential fight that they are, they believe they're in, you know, with, with the current administration. I mean, do you think it's, there's something, you know, that, that they they go back and say, okay, we know that this is, there's a self-awareness to it. Or do you think it is a for, sort of true believers there? Well, they're not true believers in anything except their own prerogatives, which is what they're defending. They're not ideologues in any sense. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard is a sincere leftist, and they wouldn't put her on their air. Yeah. They hated Tulsi Gabbard. She was a threat to their, to their deal. Um, so, yeah, they're not, they're not in any sense true believers. They're cynical. They're the opposite of that. I mean, in some sense, I'm a true believer in that I believe in, you know, kind of the basic, nothing very complicated, but like free speech and, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, just kind of Bill of Rights stuff. But I actually do believe it. I'm not just saying it. They don't believe anything. If you threaten their world, you know, the, the world of mindless credentials and finance and McKinsey and you know, like the top 1% of the country, basically, then you're a threat. So anyone who speaks in an unauthorized way, who says things that might cast light on the illegitimate scam that they're running on America, they shut you down. Like, why do they hate Alex Jones so much? I'm not endorsing Alex Jones, but I don't, you know, Alex Jones is an entertainer. He's very talented, funny as hell. They hated Alex Jones because Alex Jones made fun of them. I mean, that's really, that's why they hated Roger Stone. Roger Stone didn't really do anything. Roger Stone is mostly a prankster, but right. he mocked them to their faces and they hated him for that. Uh, they hate me for that, uh, as you may have noticed. But, um, <laughs> yes. I mean, they celebrated Roger Stone's physical destruction. I mean, they coordinated with the FBI to film his arrest, this like ridiculous spectacle that Trump you know, allowed his know, justice yeah. department. He never did anything about it. He never even pardoned Stone. He just commuted his sentence. The whole thing was showed you I, who has the power, I guess. I, but um, I, I believe CNN said they didn't actually coordinate it. But yes, um, uh, let me ask yeah, you. Well, they I mean, they went CNN got tipped off knew, by yeah. DOJ that the arrest was coming. And and so they they showed up right before it took place. But anyway, the point is they are acting on behalf 
of America's power centers. And that's why they're delighted to, you know, make contributors out of pay cash to former Intel and, and national security and federal law enforcement officials who clearly are corrupt because they're on the side of the establishment. I mean, that's kind of, if I could put it in one sentence, CNN is working on behalf of the establishment. And that's something that no news organization should ever do. That's the sin. The yeah. sin is not getting facts wrong. Everybody does that. You correct them. You know, you, you, you're, you're as honest as you can be. But that's not corruption when you make a mistake. What's corrupt is when you act on behalf of the people with power against those with no power. And that's exactly what CNN does. How about, MS- and they MS- all do. How about MSNBC, though? Because I know, obviously, you had a show also at MSNBC. And I, I found some clips of you and Rachel Maddow, actually. I know you got her start at MSNBC. Um, what, do you, what do you think of, of where they are? And how do you contrast that maybe with CNN and the landscape? I mean, they, they are a little bit more it's explicit. a little bit different. I mean, look, I worked, as you just said, at both of those places. So my personal experience colors my view. I should just say that, obviously. And I left CNN voluntarily. MSNBC fired me, just flat out fired me for low ratings. Um, and they changed the format and whatever. But right. I, you know, the left wing host had higher ratings than I did. So they fired me. I get it. But for some reason, even though they fired me, I've never been mad really at MSNBC. They're pretty straightforward. Phil Griffin called me in. We're becoming a left wing network. Your ratings aren't high enough. We're firing you. I got that. I'm an adult. I know how it works. So I, I don't have any real hard feelings toward MSNBC. And the other factor is, of course, that I think Rachel Maddow, while she's deeply enmeshed in the leadership of the Democratic Party and her show's a forum for its leaders to communicate with their voters and all that, I do think that Rachel is a pretty sincere ideologue. And I mean that as a compliment. You know, I think she really does believe things and she's very smart. So I've, I don't feel very judgmental about Rachel Maddow. I don't agree with what she says, of course, but I think she's pretty sincere. Right. Um, you know, they're not all sincere. The guy who comes after her is hilariously insincere. Um, the West Wing but, producer, you know, he's yeah. also smart. I don't, I don't hate him or anything. And, um, Chris Hayes is, you know, he's a survivor. He's still hanging in there, which is <laughs> kind of impressive, I guess. And so I'm not, I'm not mad at them. I disagree with them. I, I would say the one thing that I think is pretty destructive about, MSNBC is putting Joanne Reed on TV. She's a hater. She's a race hater and she's a bigot. And that is very divisive. You, you, you can't have someone on your air who's attacking people because of the color of their skin. And she regularly does not just once or twice, but like often. She also had that blog and that, uh, you know, seemed to have yeah, uh... the blog, whatever. <laughs> and she lied about it and she's not a very good liar, but I also, I mean, I try not to be too judgmental. I understand you write things you're embarrassed of later. I've certainly done that. You get caught, you tell an awkward lie, then you're stuck with the lie. Like, who hasn't done that? I've done that. Right. You know, not about, not at that magnitude. I've never, you know, gotten the FBI involved in my lie or something. <laughs> but I do, I understand how that happened. I think it's wrong. Most people would have been fired for it. She wasn't. I get it. But that's not really what I object to. What I object to is she is a race hater. She's attacking people because of their race on TV, and she's doing it every week. And I just think that's, that's terrible for the country. Still to come, how does Tucker Carlson self-identify politically? In the fourth watch lightning round, six questions in 60 seconds on Tucker's mentor, who he likes in the media that may surprise you, a media prediction for the next year, and more. That's coming up. 
Now for a segment from Fourth Watch called How Did This Get Published? It sounded like the Trump administration was taking another shot at the White House press corps during a recent trip by VP Mike Pence. When Vice President Mike Pence traveled to an event in Florida on Wednesday, he was not accompanied on his plane by a member of the White House press corps, as is typically the case, began a New York Times story by Annie Carney. No, Carney wrote, in a space normally reserved for a White House reporter was the vice president of communications at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank that has helped the Trump administration fill jobs throughout the government and influence policy decision. Well, that sounds bad. Let's keep reading. The administration has long elevated niche outlets that cover it more favorably, while the president has systematically cast doubt on mainstream news organizations by referring to them as, quote, fake news and the enemy of the people. If you're still reading, you've now made it approximately halfway through the New York Times' story on this matter. But as you reach the bottom of the article, you get some new information. The White House Correspondents Association put out a call for reporters earlier in the week seeking a volunteer to cover Mr. Pence's day trip to Florida as part of the pool. When the organization was unable to fill the slot, Mr. Pence's office chose the print pooler instead, according to someone familiar with the process, Carney writes. Ah, so the VP would have liked to have a reporter cover the story, but they all declined. And why did they decline? Well, as Carney writes, filling seats to cover Mr. Pence, who does not make news by design, is often a tougher sell. Right. So Mike Pence won't say any fun, off-the-cuff comment they can tweet out and build a brand like if they were covering a Trump trip, so eh, we'll, we'll just pass. But the framing is that this decision is part of the administration's plan to systematically cast doubt on mainstream news organizations. Instead, it's coverage like this which casts the doubt. New York Times, how did this get published? Now we return to conversation with Tucker Carlson. Before we get to the last minute, real quick, how, what would you say are like your political pronouns, if I asked you that? How would you describe yourself? I mean, I, you know, in an interview, you've called yourself liberal. You know, I don't know if it's populist. I, where would you sort of fall in describing yourself politically? Oh, I, I you know, I, if I'm being honest, most of the time I wouldn't even describe. I don't even think I'm very political. I mean, I never talk to politicians ever, ever. The things that I care about most and ask anyone who knows me are my family, my dogs and nature. I mean, that's, I try to spend a lot of time outside. I really care about that a lot. And I, I, you know, I've got four children and a wife I've been married to for 29 years and I have, I have a happy family and I really care about that first. So, so my politics grow out of that. Anything that's a threat to the happiness of my family, I'm opposed to. I think most people are that way. You know, if you're trying to make the country crappier, and more crowded, anything that's a threat to unspoiled nature, I'm definitely opposed to. So the idea that, you know, we're going to put a billion people in America as Matt Wyglacius or whatever that kid's called, kid's a moron. Um, you know, things like that get me going because that's, a, you know, that's cra- First of all, it's just, it's, it's destructive. Right. Like this would be a worse country and I've got all these children and I care about them and I don't want it to be a worse country. So all my politics grow out of that. I've got all kinds of different views and all kinds of different topics. Sometimes they change. Often they change. All right. Because the evidence changes. Let me ask you, we have one minute, uh, six questions in one minute here. Speed round. Where, where were you born? San Francisco, California. You're the 8 PM host on Fox news. What is one benefit and one cost of that role? Benefit is I get to say what I want. Cost is I can't go anywhere. (laughs) Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? My dad. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? That may surprise people? Oh, gosh. Um, James Carville. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? 
probably Angela Nagel and Matt Taibbi. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? For the media, yeah. there will be far fewer media outlets than there are now. Tucker, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. That was super fun. Thank, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. What is Fourth Watch? I wanted to tell you a little bit about the newsletter that was started back in December 2019, uh, before we started the Fourth Watch podcast. It's a three times per week newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. That's fourthwatch.media. And here's what you'll get in sort of the perspective that I bring to that and to this. There's a few important principles which I often return back to. First and foremost, it's not about hating the media. I love the media. I want it to be better. For 10 years, I was in the media. Stops at CNN, Fox News, NBC, The Blaze. I was a reporter for Mediaite and TV Newser. And it's because I love the media that it so pains me to see what it's become, particularly in the last four years. The introspection-free, self-serious, geographically insulated apparatus that feeds most of what counts as the quote-unquote media these days has sadly lost its way. Trust in the media has always been low, but as many in the media on both sides of the political spectrum become more polarized and polarizing, trust in the media is now at historical lows. Fourth Watch is about the media by someone who was in the media, but is now very much outside the media. And ideally, it's for people both in the media and people far outside the media, too, that don't even necessarily think the media is something they're particularly interested in. There are four key pillars of Fourth Watch. Intellectual honesty, intellectual consistency, intellectual curiosity, and intellectual discomfort. Honesty and consistency, independence from either political party, independence from any established belief, and curiosity and discomfort, a never-ending desire to be challenged, to interrogate our own beliefs. Disagreement, strongly welcome. That's the point of this podcast. That's the point of the newsletter. Check it out at fourthwatch.media. And why Fourth Watch? So a few reasons. Fourth Watch refers first and foremost to the fourth estate or fourth power. The fourth estate refers to the press or news media or journalism in general. In America, the reference to the fourth estate often is contrasted with three branches of government, with the press playing this watchdog role. However, Fourth Watch actually dates back earlier to Europe. The fourth estate was a separate entity from the other three estates, the nobility, the clergy, and the commoners. In a way, There were two spectrums of elites, and then there was the people, and the press was the conduit, the distiller, the the, the line between the two. But Fourth Watch also connotes a more detailed analysis, not just giving something a first look, but a series of interrogations. What you find on a Fourth Watch of a TV show, a fourth read of a book, a fourth examination of a particularly insane cultural moment, it'll be far more substantive than you've got on Watch One. So join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music on this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper, Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Fallen. You can download it wherever you get your music. Thanks for joining me on the premiere episode of the Fourth Watch Podcast. Next episode, I'm joined by New York Times' media columnist, Ben Smith. Stay safe. Talk to you then.